prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for uh, your word, <clears throat> grateful for your truth, um, grateful for your son, and grateful for your people and your church, grateful for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke of in the upper room. The Spirit will come and guide you into all truth. And we uh, stand today, Father, in desperate need of the illuminating ministry of your Holy Spirit as we seek to teach your word today. We just pray that the Holy Spirit would do his ministry of taking some of the things that at first glance in the Bible seem obscure I just pray that he would do his work of taking those things and making them meaningful and relevant and applicational to all the hearers. And so that we might receive freely today from your illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're going to just take a few moments of private silence um, to do business uh, with you in case fellowship needs to be restored so that we can receive freely today from your word. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Um, I do pray for myself that you would give me the skill of a surgeon as I try to teach your word today to your people. And I pray that for all of our teachers, uh, even those that are teaching now, those in the nursery, those that will be teaching during junior church. Um, I just pray that today uh, your word would go forth unadulterated, and that we would leave here changed. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory for that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Happy uh, last Sunday in August. As you guys probably know, it's hot outside. Still. I'm already sweating, and I haven't even started to preach yet. Uh, so, my shirt might need to be rinsed out during inter- inter- intermission. Um, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Isaiah, chapter 17, and verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. Um, in Sunday school, we have completed our Middle East Meltdown series, verse by verse, through chapters 36 through 39 of the book of Ezekiel. And then at that point, we said, please submit some written questions if you have any. And that was an understatement because you guys had plenty. And um, there was just a, a, a ton of questions that came in on the prophecies, so-called prophecies related to Elam, Damascus, and the Psalm 83 war, alleged Psalm 83 war. Uh, where, do, where do these prophecies fit into the Ezekiel 38 and 39 panorama? So the question goes as follows. It says, what is your understanding of the first, now, or next prophecies? And these are related to Elam, Damascus, and Psalm uh, 83. And fortunately, um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, has a, a book out dealing with the showdown with Iran, But in Appendix 1 and 2, at the end of the book, he deals with these now, near, or next prophecies. So I'm sort of indebted to him for for his research. But if you want to drill down on this and go deeper, 
I recommend his book and particularly the two appendices at the end. And one of the quotes that I've used um, in our last two sessions on this, and I'll use again uh, today, is this statement by Charles Ryrie. I think it's very helpful because it's a balancing statement. He says, eschatology, that's the study of the end, seems to suffer at the hands of its friends and foes alike. Those who play it down usually avoid specific meaning to prophetic texts. Those who play it up often assign too much. It's kind of like being in the pro-life movement. I mean, you've got two groups you've got to keep your eye on. Um, you've got people that believe in abortion under any circumstances. And then you've got people that will go out and blow up abortion clinics, you know, because they're so pro-life. So anytime a pro-lifer blows up an abortion clinic um, or kills somebody, that takes the pro-life movement and sets it back, I think, about five years. And that's the sort of, by way of analogy, that's the sort of tension you have here in eschatology, the study of the end. You have some people that just allegorize away everything. And then you have other people that make it sound like, you know, the Antichrist is living next door kind of thing. And so those are the two groups to really... Um, sort of keep at bay as you plow through 27% of the Bible that deals with the end times. So it's that uh, first group, the friends, um, that I'm sort of giving some caution here concerning these now, near, or next prophecies. And so what people are saying is there are prophecies about the Middle East meltdown, not just in Ezekiel 38, but you also got to factor in all of the prophecies concerning Elam, which we've already looked at. The prophecies concerning Damascus, which we're going to continue to look at this morning. And then you also have to factor in the so-called Psalm 83 war. So the group of people that is promoting these near uh, prophecies, now prophecies, next prophecies, they're very effective in their communication because large segments of the body of Christ are now taking prophecies which really aren't futuristic prophecies as I've tried to demonstrate it, tried to demonstrate and pushing them into the future to build a scenario for the end times. I don't have any problem with people building a scenario for the end times. The issue is make sure that the scenario that you're building actually comes from the biblical text and you're not taking something out of context to support a scenario. So when we get into this subject of Damascus, uh, this is a big issue because Damascus is on Israel's northern border. You'll notice that Damascus is in Syria. And you'll notice that that buffer zone separating Syria from Israel up north is an area called the Golan Heights, sort of a mountainous region. Here's another uh, picture of it. And what's interesting in the newspaper is when you look at Syria, the big three, uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey, if you've tracked with our series, all three of which are principal players in the end-time invasion, the big three actually today as I speak have a beachhead in Syria. So the, cu- the current government of Assyria is sort of a, uh, of Syria I should say, is sort of a puppet uh, regime largely being controlled by the big three with Putin and the leader of Iran, you know, I think being the principal players there. So here's, here are headlines that you see all the time. Um, it says, Putin, Russia, to meet Erdogan, Turkey, and Racy, Iran, in Iran. 
In fact, they were meeting recently in Tehran of Iran to discuss Syria. And so people see that and they say, well, Syria must have some sort of major role in the end times. And there are basically two passages that they gravitate towards to prove this. And it seems to fit because it fits with the newspaper. One is in Isaiah 17, verses 1 and 2, which we started talking about last time. And the second one is in Jeremiah 49, verses 23 through 27, which we're going to, Lord willing, start talking about today. But here's what Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 says. It says, The oracle concerning Damascus, behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down, and there will be no one to frighten them. So it's from a passage like this that people have this scenario in their mind, and I've been at conferences where this scenario has been trumpeted, that essentially any moment, and that's why they call these the near prophecies or the next prophecies, Any moment, the Israelis, because of the presence of the big three in Syria and Damascus, are going to launch an attack against Damascus and destroy it in fulfillment of Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. And what we're told is that that will be the match, if you will, which will ignite the flame of the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion. In fact, people teach this so aggressively, um, most people in the body of Christ, when they first hear this, they don't know of any other option interpretively because it all makes perfect sense to them. The big three are in Damascus threatening Israel. Israel's got to do something, and my goodness, when she does something, that will be a fulfillment of Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. So this is this group of people is harder for me to critique. It's easier for me to critique the replacement theologians because I have almost nothing in agreement with replacement theology in the area of eschatology. Um, so when I critique the now, near, or next prophecies group, these are people that I agree with probably on, I don't know, 90% of prophetic truths. But I feel they need a critique just like the replacement theologians need a critique, because no matter who is pushing something prophetically, we've got to make sure it's in the Word of God. Amen? Uh, the, The ultimate court of authority is not any particular teacher. It's not me. It's what the Bible says. And so if someone is pushing an idea into your mind that doesn't have support in the Bible, um, it doesn't matter if it comes from the left or if it comes from the right, um, we have to be people that want to put the Bible first. So Joel Rosenberg, who I agree with on most things, is one of these guys that's pushing this now, near, or next group of prophecies. So he writes here, When viewed together, we can say the following about the prophecies concerning Damascus, found in Jeremiah 17, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49. And he writes, both are eschatological passages referring to end time events that are yet to occur. And then he writes this, it is clear that the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah 49 have yet to be fulfilled. Of all of the words on the page there, the one that troubles me the most is that word clear. Because when you say clear, you're not leaving any room for discussion on this. Uh, you're in advance shutting down discussion when the Bible may not support what it is you're saying. Um, I get this gentleman's newsletter. Uh, he, I think he's very good. But he is also one of these individuals that's promoting this eminent destruction of Damascus mindset. He says, however, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 17 remains in the future. 
Back to Joel Rosenberg, he says Isaiah 13 through 24, that's the nations that Isaiah speaks out against. Rosenberg writes, these prophecies are also end time matters, and then he starts dealing with possible scenarios when they could happen. And one of the scenarios he mentions is before the tribulation. So that's why these are called the near next uh, any moment type of prophecies. Um, it's a movement basically that says there's a bunch of prophecies that are going to be fulfilled before the tribulation period even starts. Rosenberg lists that as an option. So there are actually wars before the prophesied war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Rosenberg says we know these are end-time prophecies and not near-term prophecies. Notice the expression, we know. know, In other words, we're absolutely certain on this. So what we're dealing with here is Isaiah 17, which basically is a prediction concerning the destruction of Damascus. I mean, is it is it really true that perhaps before the tribulation period, based on the authority of God's word? Let me backtrack. If the scenario happens, fine. But is that what the Bible says? Does the Bible because they're claiming biblical authority when they teach this? I mean, is it clear? Is it something we know? that the Israelis are going to take out Israel first before the tribulation, so that's going to ignite the Gog-Magog war down the road. I mean, is that clear? Is that something we know? And so he's dealing with the prophecy of Damascus and Syria in Isaiah 17. Now, the last time we were together, I tried to show you from the writings of Dr. Mark Hitchcock that Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 which everybody is using to build their case for Syria's imminent destruction. Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 is found in a context. A text without a context is a proof text or a pretext to support someone's theological system. So that's why when systematic theologians make their points and then they put a parenthesis and they list all of these verses that supposedly support each point, um, it's really easy to look at the volume of verses that are in the parenthetical marks and say, wow, this really has biblical support. But you have to be very wary of that because you have to look very carefully to see if they're using the Bible correctly. I mean, just throwing something in a parenthetical note doesn't mean anything unless you examine in its original intent uh, all of these different verses. And that's what Dr. Mark Hitchcock is doing with Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. He's saying, look, Isaiah 16, verse 14, which comes before chapter 17, is a prophecy of Moab's destruction that would be fulfilled within three years of the time of writing in the book of Isaiah. And then he says Isaiah 17, 12 through 14, is a prophecy of the destruction of the Assyrian army, which was fulfilled in one night in 701 B.C. So if chapter 16 is about something that would happen in Isaiah's lifetime, and the end of chapter 17 is dealing with something that could be fulfilled or was fulfilled in Isaiah's general lifetime, then why in the world would you just rip chapter 17, 1 and 2 out of its context and make it sound like this is some sort of futuristic destruction of Syria, of Damascus, or Damascus of Assyria, which from the year 2022 is still futuristic. He's kind of blowing the whistle here on this by simply taking Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 and reinserting it into its context. 
So with all that being said, here's what Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 says. I read it earlier. The oracle concerning Damascus, behold, Damascus is about to remove from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. The city is of aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down and there will be no one to frighten them. And what I'd like to communicate to you is Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 has absolutely nothing to do with a future end time battle. Before the tribulation period, it doesn't even have anything to do with a battle within the tribulation period. Because Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 already happened. It happened in 732 B.C. when Damascus was destroyed by Tiglath Pileser of Assyria. Note the words of Warren Wiersbe, you know, a traditional... Bible interpreter. He says in Isaiah 17, 1 and 2, he, that's Isaiah, warned Damascus, the capital of Aram or Syria, that the city would be taken by the enemy. This occurred when the Assyrians conquered Aram in 732 BC. Following their usual custom, the Assyrians deported many of the citizens which left the land and cities deserted. So what Wiersbe is saying is this already happened. You say, well, wait a minute. Um, There's people living in Syria today. Well, that's true because the prophecy never says, and I'll point this out in a second, that Damascus would be destroyed forever. Now, it does say that concerning Babylon, but it doesn't say that here. So if it doesn't say that, then that opens the the door for a temporary destruction of the city, which already took place in 732 B.C. And if that's true, then you can't use this verse as a scenario builder, as a proof text for first comes Israel's attack on Damascus, and then comes the Gog-Magog invasion. You just took that piece of evidence and you took it away from the near next um, prophecies crowd, prophecy mentality. Now, Joel Rosenberg says this, Isaiah's prophecy was given in 715 B.C., well after the conquering of Damascus in 732 by Tiglath-Pileser. So Rosenberg says, well, you know what? Um, This can't be something described in 732 B.C. the way you're describing it, the way I'm describing it, because the prophecy was given in 715 B.C. And where in the world is he getting this from? He's getting it from Isaiah... 44, excuse me, no, not Isaiah 44, Isaiah 14 and verse 28, because he's anchoring this down to the year that Ahaz died. And it says in Isaiah 14, verse 28, now look how far he's got to move out of Isaiah 17 to make this work. He's leaving the context of Isaiah 17, and he wants to direct your attention to Isaiah 14, verse 28. And the reason he's doing that is he says, these prophecies were fulfilled when King Ahaz died. We know that happened in 715 B.C. So if this is given in 715 B.C., how could it be a prophecy about something given 17 years earlier or fulfilled, I should say, 17 years earlier in 732 B.C. In other words, what he's saying is Isaiah 17 has nothing to do with 732 B.C. because these prophecies were given 17 years after the fact. That's his point. So Rosenberg writes, Isaiah's prophecy was given in 715 B.C. well after the conquering of Damascus in 732 B.C. Now here's the problem is when you look at Isaiah 14, verse 28, it says, In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. So when the date 
of 715 B.C. is given, that's not for any other prophecy other than the prophecy concerning Philistia. In other words, that comment concerning the timing relates to the prophecy concerning the destruction of Philistia, which is given in Isaiah 14, verses 28 through 32. You can't grab that language and suddenly say, well, the prophecy concerning Damascus was given at the exact same time. I mean, that's to make the Bible say something that it is not saying. And you'll notice that in Rosenberg's writings, he doesn't even tell you what I just said. That Isaiah 14, verse 28, the 715 date, relates only to Philistia. He's making it sound like it also relates to Damascus. And he has to travel back several chapters in the Bible to make this work. So if someone is making a point to you theologically or exegetically from the passage and they've got to go somewhere else to make their interpretation fit, um, that automatically should send up some red flags in the mind of the listener. Now, people say, well, okay, you think Isaiah 17 already happened in 732 B.C., but don't you believe that the prophecies concerning Babylon, which are found in Isaiah 13 and 14, don't you believe that those prophecies are yet future? So why do you take Babylon futuristically, but you're taking the prophecy concerning Damascus historically? Well, the reason I'm doing that is because the prophecies concerning Babylon say something that the prophecy concerning Damascus does not say. What the prophecies concerning Babylon say is when Babylon is destroyed, she will be destroyed forever. There is no prophecy of a temporary destruction of Babylon. Once Babylon falls, she will be destroyed forever, never inhabited again. So I'm very comfortable taking the prophecies concerning Babylon and putting them into the future, but in the Damascus prophecy, it never says that Damascus will be destroyed forever. So back in Isaiah 14, verses 1 through 4, we went through some of these last time. Concerning Babylon, it says, when the Lord... Excuse me, I had the wrong passage on my notes. Back in Isaiah 14, 20 through 24, it says, concerning Babylon, you will not be united with them in burial because they have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of the evildoers not be mentioned forever. Um, that's a good one too, but that's not the one I wanted. <laughs> Isaiah 13. There we go. That looks, that looks familiar. Concerning Babylon's destruction, it says it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. The prophecy of Damascus doesn't say that. Nor will Arab pitch his tent there. Nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. And it kind of continues on that way through verse 21 of Isaiah 13 and verse 22 of Isaiah 13. Jeremiah, in his discussion concerning the destruction of Babylon, in Jeremiah 50 and 51, he says the exact same thing. The key verse would be in Jeremiah 51, verse 26. Notice what that says. Jeremiah is talking about Babylon. They will not take from you even a stone for a corner, nor a stone for foundations, but you, that's Babylon, will be desolate forever, declares the Lord. 
it's sort of interesting that when you compare these prophecies of the destruction of Babylon to what we know of known history, the prophecies concerning Babylon were never fulfilled. Here's what Herodotus said. He is writing within a century of Babylon's destruction, supposedly, at the hands of the Persians in 539 B.C. And Herodotus in his histories says he, that Cyrus, the man who came to destroy Babylon of Persia, made the former course of the river passable by the sinking of the stream. The stream having sunk so far that it reached out to the middle of a man's thigh. And look at this last line here in the writings of Herodotus. Those Babylonians who dwelt in the middle of the city did not know they had been captured. And when you study history, what you learn is that the Persians diverted the Euphrates, went under the walls of Babylon. And the Persians conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. By the way, this conquest is recorded in your Bible. It's recorded in Daniel 5. It's the night that Belshazzar, the last reigning king of Babylon, saw the handwriting on the wall, you'll remember. When that happened and Babylon fell to the Persians, there wasn't even a war. In fact, the whole thing was a surprise attack. The the Babylonians were parting on that night as if they would last forever. And without even so much as a conflict, without even so much as a war, Babylon fell to the Persians. So what do you do with Jeremiah 51, verse 26, that says when Babylon falls, she will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, and she'll never be rebuilt? Obviously, that prophecy has never happened. So therefore, Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 are futuristic. And that makes perfect sense because God in bold judgment number 7 in the book of Revelation Chapter 16, verse 19, is going to destroy Babylon completely and forever. Jeremiah 50 and 51, Isaiah 13 and 14 have never been fulfilled because of the word forever, destroyed forever, and the fact that we can go to other places in God's word telling us when Babylon will be destroyed. So Babylon has to be rebuilt, come back to life in the Middle East, so it can be destroyed exactly like God said. Because it's impossible for God to what? To lie. So I'm extremely comfortable saying Babylon is future, these prophecies, Isaiah 13 and 14. But just because Babylon's future, I can't turn around and make Damascus future. Because the language of forever is not used in the Damascus prophecy. Uh, This is a copy of the Cyrus Cylinder. You can find this in a periodical called Amet, Ancient Near Eastern Texts. If you're having some trouble sleeping at night, you can borrow it from my library because it's English translations of ancient texts like the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder is a record of Cyrus' boasts of Persia when he conquered Babylon in 539. And as Cyrus is boasting in the Cyrus Cylinder, and as I'm relying on the Annette translation for understanding of this, this language in no way, shape, or form fits anything concerning what either Isaiah or Jeremiah described concerning the ultimate destruction of Babylon. So Cyrus boasts that he boasts he took over Babylon, 539 B.C., handwriting on the wall chapter, without any battle. Now, I'm sorry, that's not what Isaiah or Jeremiah say. It says when Babylon falls, she's going to fall cataclysmically like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And then he says in the Cyrus Cylinder, when I entered Babylon under jubilation and rejoicing. In other words, the Babylonians were happy that they just got conquered by the Persians. That doesn't sound like any cataclysmic battle, does it? Cyrus says, I walked around Babylon in peace. I did not allow anybody to terrorize any place. He goes on and he mentions these uh, Babylonian deities and how he made sure that they weren't hurt or destroyed in any way. I resettled all of these Babylonian statues unharmed in peaceful or resettled them in a peaceful place. Now, why would Cyrus do that? Because Cyrus was not a believer in Yahweh. say, well, how do you know that? I know that because of what Isaiah 45 verse 4 says. God, through the prophet Isaiah, calls Cyrus out by name. And he says, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name. This is 200 years in advance right here. God is calling out the name of the person that he's going to use, A, to conquer Babylon, and B, to release the nation of Israel at the end of the 70-year captivity. I mean, this would be like um, 200 years ago, someone saying Ronald Wilson Reagan will become president of the United States, and lo and behold, it happens 200 years later. I mean, liberals, they just, they don't know what to do with this. So they pretend like somebody wrote it after the fact. That's called the Deutero-Isaiah theory, or the Trito-Isaiah theory. They try to make it sound like someone other than Isaiah wrote this, rather than believe in predictive prophecy. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name. By the way, if you go back to verse 1, you'll see the name Cyrus given. If you go back to chapter 44, verse 28, you'll see the name Cyrus given. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Look at this. Though you have not known me. I mean, Cyrus, the best I can tell, had no understanding of God. No relationship to God. He was an unbeliever. And yet God's sovereignty is so profound that God actually raised up an unbeliever to destroy Babylon and to release his people from the 70-year captivity. God says, I'm going to do this with an unbeliever, and I'm going to give you his name 200 years before he even shows up. It's amazing. So when you understand that Cyrus was an unbeliever, you understand why Cyrus, when he conquered Babylon, was very concerned about all of these Babylonian deities. He didn't want to upset them because the man was a polytheist. He was not a monotheist like God's people are. So he went out of his way not to hurt, not to trash, not to to harm any of the Babylonian deities. And in fact, he says here in this Cyrus cylinder, I hope all these deities will say nice things about me and pray for me daily because I was nice to them. So why am I bringing all of this up? I'm bringing all of this up because the cataclysmic destruction of Babylon that Isaiah and Jeremiah clearly are predicting does not fit the known facts of history. So what do you do with these passages? A lot of people just say, well, it's just hyperbole. No, God is going to do exactly what he says. And there's an actual place in biblical history for God to do this, it's called the seventh bold judgment. Dr. John Walvoord writes, as far as the historic fulfillment is concerned, it is obvious from both scripture and history that these verses concerning Babylon have not been literally fulfilled. 
He goes on in this quote and he talks about how the city did not experience a sudden termination such as anticipated in this prophecy. And one of the things that leads us to the conclusion that Babylon has a future yet to be destroyed by God is the word forever. When Babylon is brought down, she will be brought down forever. Obviously can't be a past event because there's people living in Babylon today. In fact, uh, that word forever is a big deal. It's the Hebrew word olam because it's a word used to describe God. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, that's Olam, you are God. When Babylon is destroyed by God, she will be destroyed forever. That nomenclature does not fit the known facts of history. Therefore, Isaiah 13 and 14 are yet future. Now, when you go to Isaiah 17, 1 and 2, there's nothing in the language of the destruction of Damascus that even parallels to what I've just described. The word olam, forever, is not even used in the passage. Um, to get that to work, they've got to go to the Greek translation of Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 called the LXX, but the Greek translation of an Old Testament passage is just a translation. It's not inspired. The text itself says absolutely nothing about the forever destruction of Damascus, meaning that this prophecy is a prophecy of temporary destruction which was already fulfilled in 732 B.C. Now, if the word forever was found in Isaiah 17, then there would be a point to readjust the thinking on this and say, okay, Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 has never been fulfilled, therefore it's yet future, therefore I'm open to the Joel Rosenberg scenario. But because the word olam or forever is not found in Isaiah 17, 1 and 2, I'm open to the idea that Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 already happened. And if Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 already happened, I'm a little troubled by people that stand up in front of thousands and thousands of people, as I've seen done as an eyewitness, where they're telling people with absolute dogmatism. They're using words like no, they're using words like clear, that any moment the Israelis are going to take out Syria. And that is going to be the fuse that's going to ignite the Gog-Magog war. Now that kind of teaching, I, I know it's very exciting to hear that. I realize that. But excitement is not the barometer of truth, right? <laughs> the barometer of truth is, is the scenario you're talking about when you're relying upon a prophecy that already happened, is the scenario biblical? Now, there's something very else interesting about the Babylon prophecy. And I got this from my professor, Dr. Charles Dyer. He has a chart here where he shows you how much of Jeremiah 50 and 51, a prophecy concerning Babylon, shows up in Revelation 17 and 18. Why does Jeremiah 50 and 51 and so much of the language show up in Revelation 17 and 18? Answer, because Revelation 17 and 18 is the time in history where Jeremiah 50 and 51 will be fulfilled. That's another clue that the prophecies concerning Babylon are futuristic. So in both sections of Scripture, as you study them, and I would encourage you to do that, read Jeremiah 50 and 51, and then flip over to Revelation 17 and 18, and read those chapters, and you'll see these parallels for yourself. Both chapters associate Babylon with a golden cup, dwelling on many waters, intoxicating the nations, called the same name, Babylon the Great, persecuting the saints. 
Both sections of Scripture describe the destruction of Babylon as a stone sinking into the Euphrates, describe her destruction as sudden, by fire, final. And when she falls, she deserves it because she's a God-hating city. God's people fleeing and heaven rejoicing. So I'm reading Jeremiah 50 and 51, and I'm looking at the passage, and I'm saying this doesn't fit the known facts of history. So it must be future. And I say to the Lord, I say, Lord, can you show me when Babylon is going to be destroyed if it hasn't been destroyed already? And, and the Holy Spirit responds, and he says, open your Bible to Revelation 17 and 18. I say, thank you, Lord. Now I understand when Babylon's going to be destroyed. You understand that there is absolutely nothing like this in the Damascus prophecy? Nowhere in the book of Revelation do you see any similar kind of parallel where I can put up a chart in two columns and I can put up Damascus in one column and something in the book of Revelation in the other column and show you all the parallels. And that becomes another clue that the Damascus prophecy is has already been historically fulfilled. The Babylon prophecy has not been historically fulfilled. Now, Isaiah, in Isaiah 13 through 23, gives his judgment judgments on the surrounding nations. He mentions Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Syria, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, and Tyre. And you look at the whole list. Does anybody see something interesting here? Can't look at the underlined portion. Hmm, Babylon is mentioned twice in this section where he's dealing with the judgment of the nations. Assyria is not mentioned twice. Philistia is not mentioned twice. Moab isn't mentioned twice. Damascus and Syria are not mentioned twice. Ethiopia isn't mentioned twice. Egypt isn't mentioned twice. Edom isn't mentioned twice, nor is Arabia, Jerusalem, Tyre. Why would Isaiah have two oracles against Babylon? Answer. Because in Isaiah 21, he is describing Babylon's past fall to the Persians. But in Isaiah 13 and 14, he is not describing Babylon's past fall, but Babylon's future fall. See that? So that repetition of the word Babylon shows me that Babylon has a Future. By the way, do you see two oracles against Damascus and Samaria here? You don't see it. So this, in your arguments, becomes another reason why you treat Babylon with a different set of gloves than you do Damascus and Samaria. Damascus and Samaria already happened. The final destruction of Babylon is uh, yet future. Now, here's something very, very interesting. Notice Isaiah 14, verses 1 through 4. When Babylon falls, the nation of Israel will be regenerated. Isaiah 14, verse 1. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and choose Israel again and settle them in their own land. Then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Verse 2. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land, as male servants and female servants, and will take their captors captive 
and will rule over their oppressors. If you look at verse 4, it says, And you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how the fury has ceased. Isaiah says when Babylon falls, Israel will be restored. It's almost like cause and effect. Babylon goes, Israel is restored politically and spiritually. Which would be a great comfort, would it not, to God's people here? who were so persecuted by Babylon and brought into the captivity by Babylon. God says the time in history is going to come when Babylon will be taken out and you, my tiny elect nation, will be brought to restoration. Notice Jeremiah 50 verses 4 and 5. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. They will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God they will seek. They will ask for the way to Zion. Turning their faces in its direction, they will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant and will not be forgotten. This is dealing with Babylon's destruction, Jeremiah 50 and 51. When Babylon is destroyed, Israel is restored. Look at Jeremiah um, 50, verse 20. It says, In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, a search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. For the sins of Judah, they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Babylon falls, Israel will be forgiven. Look at Jeremiah 51, verse 50. You who have escaped the sword, depart. Do not say, do not stay. Remember the Lord from afar and let Jerusalem come to your mind. See, what is Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 predicting concerning the future destruction of Babylon? When Babylon falls, Israel will be restored politically and spiritually. And we know that this is an event yet future, because it fits perfectly with what the book of Revelation says concerning the destruction of Babylon. The book of Revelation says God is going to destroy Babylon and restore Israel. Ah, that's when Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Isaiah 13 and 14 will be fulfilled. With that being said, compare it to the Damascus prophecy. God says that when I destroy Damascus, Israel will not be restored. He says the opposite. Israel will fade. See the difference? Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 is followed by verses 3 and 4. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. That's a synonym for the northern kingdom when Syria falls. Damascus of Syria falls. And sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant from Aram, they will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Now in that day, what day? When Damascus of Syria is toppled by God. In that day, the glory of Jacob, who's Jacob? Israel. Jacob will fade. And the fatness of his flesh will become lean. You see how different that is than the prophecies of Babylon? When Babylon falls, Israel is restored. doesn't say that in Isaiah 17. It says when Damascus is destroyed, Israel will not be restored. Israel will fade. See, that becomes another clue that the Isaiah 17 prophecy has already found a fulfillment. End times prophecy does not predict the fading of the northern kingdom. 
What the prophecies of Ezekiel predict is that the northern kingdom, the two sticks, you'll recall, the northern kingdom will be united to the southern kingdom in the millennial kingdom. The two sticks coming together, Ezekiel 37, verses 15 through 28. When you're putting prophecies into the future, you should see in those prophecies a restoration of Israel. That's not what Isaiah 17 says. It says the opposite. So, therefore, when God destroys Damascus, Israel is going to fade. The northern kingdom is going to fade. That becomes yet another clue that the Damascus prophecy, as much as everybody is pumping it, and hyping it to build a scenario, they're building a scenario from a text that doesn't belong in the rubric of passages, you know, that they're they're using. Because it is true, around the time that Damascus was destroyed by Tiglath-Pileser, of Assyria in 731 BC, right around that time period, the northern kingdom went into dispersion, 722 BC, just a few years after that. And the remaining southern kingdom went into captivity. Isaiah 17 fits beautifully with that time period. It does not fit beautifully with the time period of the end times when the opposite is going to happen. Israel's not going to fade. Israel is going to be restored. Because isn't that the whole purpose of the tribulation period? Isn't the whole purpose of the tribulation period for the salvation of the Jewish nation? This, by the way, is one of the reasons you can't be in that time period. The rapture precedes it. Because it's a time of distress for Jacob. You're not Jacob. You're the church. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 of that time period says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. Tribulation period passage, in other words. It is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. What in the world is God doing in the tribulation period? He is putting the nation of Israel under so much distress that a remnant calls out to Yeshua to rescue them. That's the goal that is being uh, produced, inculcated during the tribulation period. So it is very, very suspicious to take Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 and say that's a futuristic prophecy of the end times. When as you just read what follows verses 1 and 2, you don't see the salvation of Israel mentioned in Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. You see the opposite. You see Israel fading. The fading of Israel fits perfectly with the time period of the dispersion of the northern kingdom and the captivity of the southern kingdom. It doesn't fit at all with the end times scenario. The Babylon passages fit beautifully, but not this Damascus prophecy. You say, well, pastor, that's a lot of information. Um, Do you have something simpler that we can use to keep all this stuff straight? And I come riding to your rescue. And I just lost my reward there because I was boasting, wasn't I? But this is a chart, and I just put this together, and um, I just wanted to show people the difference between Damascus and Babylon. Because what people are saying is if the Babylon passage is future, the Damascus passage must be future. And they're taking apples and oranges and mixing them together. So notice the difference between the Damascus prophecy and the Babylon prophecies. The subject of the Damascus prophecy is who? Not a trick question. Damascus. The subject of the Babylon prophecies is Babylon. You guys are very, very good. The scripture for the Damascus prophecy is in Isaiah 17. The scripture for the Babylon prophecy is in Isaiah 13 and 14. 
When Damascus falls, will she fall forever? No. When Babylon falls, will she fall forever? Yes. Are contents of the Damascus prophecy found in the book of Revelation? No. Are contents of the Babylon prophecy found in the book of Revelation? Yes. How many oracles does Damascus receive in Isaiah's prophecies concerning the destruction of the nations? Damascus gets one oracle. How many oracles does Isaiah give to Babylon? Two. Does the Damascus prophecy mention Israel's restoration? No, it actually says the opposite. Israel will fade. Does the Babylon prophecy mention Israel's restoration? Somebody help there, help me. It's lonely up here. Yes. What is the time frame of the Damascus prophecy, therefore? Past. What is the time period of the Babylon prophecy? Yet future. And see, a lot of these sensationalists will never expose you to a chart like this. They'll just kind of work you up into a frenzy and say, okay, Babylon is future, therefore Damascus is future. And that's not being a careful Bible student. Dr. John Walvoord in his book, Every Prophecy of the Bible, says concerning Damascus, the destruction of Damascus was fulfilled in history and prophecy. So Dr. Walbert is looking at the same clues I'm looking at, and he is coming to a conclusion that the Damascus prophecy already happened, 732 B.C., but the Babylon prophecies are yet to come. Now, one of the things, and I'll conclude with this point, is what people are saying is, okay, Pastor, you've made your point. Isaiah 17 already happened. But if Isaiah 17 already happened, couldn't it be fulfilled multiple times? Uh, I had a professor, a younger professor, that tried to convince us all of this type of approach to prophecy. He started drawing circles on the board. And he kept drawing them, and the circle would get larger and larger. And he would say, yes, uh, the Damascus prophecy, for example, was already historically fulfilled, but it could be fulfilled again in the end times. And this is called the dual fulfillment approach to prophecy. I'm here to tell you that that approach to prophecy puts you in very... It's a very precarious method of interpretation because it violates a basic principle of hermeneutics called single meaning. Milton Terry, in his very good hermeneutics book, published all the way back in 1947, says, quote, a fundamental principle in grammatico-historical exposition is that words and sentences can have but one significance in one and the same connection. The moment we neglect this principle, we drift upon a sea of uncertainty and conjecture, he says. Dr. Bernard Ram, in his classic book entitled Protestant Biblical Interpretation, says... But here we must remember the old adage that interpretation is one. Application is many. This means there is only one meaning to a passage of Scripture which is determined by careful study. But a given text or a given passage may speak to a number of problems or issues. He says five or six kinds of sermons could be preached from the text. You must be born again. John chapter 3 verse 7. What application the preacher makes of the text is determined by the purposes of the sermon. But the preacher must always distinguish the initial primary meaning of the text from the particular application he makes with it. 
Here's the truth of the matter. You come to Sugarland Bible Church and you can expect this. There's one meaning to every passage. And I work very, very hard to study that meaning and try to draw it out. And I spend a lot of pulpit time explaining that original meaning. There's only one meaning. Sometimes I get it right, maybe sometimes I get it wrong. That doesn't change the fact there's one meaning. However, that one meaning can be applied many, many different ways in your life. Like someone will say, gee, pastor, the sermon that you preached the other day, that really helped me in this area. Someone else will come along and say, gee, pastor, the sermon you preached the other day, it helped me in another area. Now, does that mean there are two meanings to the passage? No, there's only one. It's just the Holy Spirit decided to apply it in different ways in different people's lives. This is basic hermeneutics. And one of the great sins, if I can be so bold as to put it that way, in modern-day evangelicalism is pastors are not taking the time in the pulpits to establish meaning. Because let's be honest, the average attention span doesn't want to hear that. People want the pastor to move right into application. How does this passage speak to me? I call that not exegesis, but narcissism, right? It's got to be about me, right? Or it doesn't mean anything. Well, that's not the job of preaching and teaching. The job of preaching and teaching is to establish what it means, first of all. And then secondarily, there can be application to personal lives, which are multifaceted. You see, this idea that Isaiah 17 keeps being fulfilled multiple times in history, once in 732 B.C., and then it's going to be fulfilled a second time on the eve of the tribulation period, as the near now or next prophecy's mindset is saying, is to ignore the principle of single meaning. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, who is that talking about? Jesus. Was that fulfilled multiple times in history? No. That prophecy was singularly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, in Acts 8, Philip used that passage to bring the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch to faith Acts 30, verses 30 through 35. There are not multiple fulfillments of Isaiah 53. How about the passage that I mentioned earlier concerning the prediction of Cyrus? Isaiah 44, verse 28. Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 4. Is that passage concerning God raising up Cyrus to destroy Babylon and release his people from the 70-year captivity. Is that is that prophecy fulfilled many, many times in history? I mean, have there been many, many Cyruses? No, there's one Cyrus. Passages fulfilled once. Isaiah 53 was fulfilled once. Isaiah 17 was fulfilled once. It's already, been, it's already happened. Isaiah 13 and 14 will be fulfilled once. You see the difference. So I took some time on that because this Damascus prophecy in Isaiah 17 is one of the hottest topics today. And I'm trying to take its hotness away. Can I do that? I mean, what's hot is Ezekiel 38 and 39. But not Isaiah 17. That already happened. Now, they're using another passage in Jeremiah 49, which we'll get to um, next time. And speaking of hot, I'm very, very warm up here, so I'm going to stop. Father, we're grateful for your word, your truth. Help us to divide your word correctly in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Happy short intermission.